Okay. Good to see you all this morning. My name is Jared. I, uh, I'm just a member here, a willing member to uh, present a message. My son this morning said, Dad, what are you preaching on? I was like, well, I don't like to say the word preaching. I'm just gathering words together, <laughs> and hopefully it makes sense. Preaching sounds too lofty a word for me at this time. Um, so we've been in 1 Timothy. So you can start to turn 1 Timothy chapter 3. And if you're unfamiliar with how we do things across life, we like to stick to uh, a book at a time. And uh, previous weeks, Ricky has been preaching pretty much predominantly all. He's done all of 1 Timothy, I think. Um, and uh, we went through elders, which is the first part of chapter 3, and he has asked that I skip some verses because he wants to come back and do deacons. So he has the authority to do that. He can pick the verses he wants, and uh, he has that privilege. So we're just skipping a few verses and headed to verses 14 and 16 this week. Uh, mystery of godliness is what I'm speaking on. <clears throat> and uh, I'm going to give you just a minute um, to read it. Verses, so it's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. When I first read this, um, when Ricky asked me to, well, he knew he would be gone this week, so he asked either Andy or I uh, to present a message. And when I first uh, read it, casually, as I'm, I'm guilty of doing that, we're not supposed to, but I casually read through it. I was probably in the middle of something else and just glanced at it. But what struck me is this seems out of place, especially knowing what we had been coming through 1 Timothy. Um, his, Paul has a rhythm when he writes in his letters, and he often talks of mysteries. He's, he's good at that, and a mystery of the Holy Spirit, mystery of Jesus, mystery of hello. Jesus lives in us, and sometimes it compiles of other letters, um, but, and we'll touch base on that. But as far as talking of the church body and the order of things, these two, three verses um, seem out of place. And what struck me is it's, I often put a little um, fleshly, well, if I were in that position, but, and I shouldn't all the time, but I'm going to share this because it's as if he got caught in the moment to me when, when you take the whole letter into context, that he realized he's on this rant, which he often does, and then all of a sudden he just comes so exasperated and is like, I wish I'd just come with you and fix it, you know, is in a nutshell what he says. I, w I long to be with you, but if I'm delayed, these are instructions, right? 
I often do that with my son. I get so caught up into trying to explain something to him. It's just like I, d- I have to take back and just collect myself and just like, but I understand. You're eight. <laughs> I was eight too. You know, it's, it's almost as if Paul's just taking a pause, catching his breath, because he'll go right back into, after these verses we go through today, he's going to go right back into order and how to uh, combat uh, false preaching and just the structure of the church. So, And he does that in other letters as well. There's a rhythm. He comes back to things that he said previously. But this is where he kind of takes a pause, collects himself, and basically just starts singing a hymn. So I'll read it again, and then we'll dive in. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Although, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is where he, Paul, calls the church to proper conduct and confession. But I would like to start in the middle of verse 15. We must take a good look at Paul's description of the church in the last half of verse 15, where he uses three graphic phrases. One, God's household. Two, which is the church of the living God. And three, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So God's household here is undoubtedly metaphorically language for family because that is what it means. In prior verses, verse 4, quote, He must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In verse 12, deacons must be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. The word is variously translated family or household. It also speaks in Galatians 6.10 and Ephesians 2.19. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. So the church is a family. With God as the Father, believers as His children, and therefore brothers and sisters, and elders and deacons as leaders to help the family carry out the Father's purposes. The fact that God calls us to be a family has profound implications. For starters, it means we are in eternal relationship. We will always be brothers and sisters. If you are not getting along with your brother and sister, the eternal aspect may not seem so inviting. 
But the happy fact is, in heaven, it will be the redeemed whom we will well dwell. To be with Christ and live above with the saints we love. In the meantime, to live below with the saints we know, well, that can be a struggle. However, living below with the saints we know is meant to be and can be glorious if we draw close to what the Father has said and laid out before us. The Apostle John alludes to this in 1 John chapter 1. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. There is the implicit relational triangle here with God, Father and Son, and the pinnacle and believers at the bottom angles. So it looks like this. So the closer our relationship to Him, the closer we become to one another. A.W. Tozer gave this truth unforgettable expression when he wrote, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly were be where they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer relationship. Does that make sense? The church of the living God. In the Old Testament, God is called the living God to emphasize the deadness of idols. It is also a favorite designation for God in the New Testament, being used some 15 times. It emphasizes that He is eternal and immortal. It stresses that He is the source of life and the one who communicates life to believers in Christ. 2 Corinthians says, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ephesians 2, And in Him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Because God dwells in us, when we come together, we come as the church, the congregation of the living God. This is the great glory of assembling together on the Lord's day. All of us, indwelt, make up the dynamic assembly of the living God. And this brings much spiritual encouragement among us. Listening to the word of God alone is a good thing. And singing to God alone is also a good thing. But singing to God together and hearing His Word preached together is better. Our hearing and singing intensify when we are the, with brothers and sisters in whom God also dwells. This is why God's Word is adamant that we believers meet together. Hebrews 10 verse 25, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Paul also writes in Colossians chapter 1, I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden 
for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The Sunday gathering is an assembly of the living God. The pillar and foundation of the truth. This is an awesome and descriptive phrase. Pillar and foundation are graphic architectural metaphors. A foundation essential is essential to the building. A building is only as good as its foundation. The church provides the solid bedrock of truth. Pillars stand upright on the foundation as columns and give the building its structure and beauty. The church as a pillar upholds the truth. Of course, the truth comes from God. God is the source of truth and not the church. But wherever, whenever the church is faithful to God's word, it is the foundation and pillar of God's truth in this world. This awesome reality lays equally awesome responsibilities on the church. Just as a foundation supports a building or a pillar supports the roof, the assembly of believers has been appointed to uphold and support in this world the truth that God has revealed through Christ. This is a divine call to allow the word of God to saturate all of life. Jesus himself prayed for the church, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth in John 17, 17. The truth of the Bible is to form and inform the foundations and the pillars. God's word is to be everything to us in the church so that when the world asks, what is a family? The church, I have the truth. When the world asks, what is the role of man? The church is the foundation and pillar of God's word saying, we have the truth. When the world asks, what is a woman? The church is the foundation and pillar holding the truth, saying we have the truth. When the world asks, what do we do with refugees? The church is holding the truth, saying we have the truth. When the world asks, what is truth? Because of the word, the church is saying, we have the truth. The foundation, the pillar, and the word, we hold it up for the world to see. These three descriptive phrases together make a compelling picture. As the church, we are family or household. And together we are to love as brothers and sisters who share the same heredity. We are the church of the living God. We come together as multiple temples of the living God, alive and dynamic. As the church, 
We are the pillar and foundation of the truth. The truth of God's word is the bedrock, mortar, and bricks of our lives. Verses 14 and 15 together, the verse in which this beautiful description of the church is embedded is the key verse in understanding what 1 Timothy is all about. Namely, that there be proper conduct in the church. So verses 14 and 15 read together, make this very clear. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Conduct in the church was such a concern to Paul that virtually all of chapters 2 and 3 are all called to exemplary conduct, to a holy behavior and uncontentious prayer, chapter 2, modest dressed, chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, biblical church order, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and godly elders and deacons, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. The motivation for this exemplary conduct was openly evangelistic, as mentioned in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And there in the key verse of 1 Timothy, the call to proper conduct in the church is made even more compelling by understanding that we are family a gathering of people indwelt by the living God, the repository and heralds of truth. When the people of God live out what they are in Christ, God is pleased to enhance the preaching of the truth of the gospel. Conduct and details in worship is very important and serious to Almighty God. The details in Exodus and Leviticus of the construction of the Old Testament tabernacle tabernacle on how to build and conduct service order, the giving of laws was lengthy and very intricate, even to what the priests wore. Why? God's presence would be there among them. It's where people would have gone in the Bible to find God. The church has taken its place, the body of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the Israelites started worshiping false gods and God removed himself from the tabernacle. In the New Testament, Israel rejected Christ and 30 some odd years after he resurrected, God allowed the temple to be destroyed. God removed himself again. If we reject his teachings now, the church will no longer be the pillar and foundation of truth. And like dominoes, the church will be no more. If faith comes by hearing, then we have a responsibility to what the Bible says and be a good witness. We are the only Bible the unbeliever may read. We should treat each other so differently here and act so differently in the world that we are asked, why do we live the way we do? Our conduct should be different than the world's. The mystery to the world should be, why are you the way you are? Your answer? 
you're a Christian. So why do we do the things that we do? Verse 16. Paul's two main concerns as expressed in this text are about the church's conduct and then the church's confession in respect to what they believed about Christ. Having stated that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth, at the end of verse 15, Paul naturally moves on to the subject of the truth of Christ. He does so by quoting six lines from a creedal hymn about the person of Christ, which he introduces by saying, beyond, question, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Whenever Paul uses the word mystery, he uses it to reference Christ as the revelation of the before now God's hidden plan of salvation. So in saying here that the mystery of godliness is great, he is presenting the person and work of Christ as the key to godly conduct. Jesus makes godliness possible. And beyond, quest, beyond all question just simply means it's without controversy or it's obvious. Then comes the Christ-saturated hymn. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed in the world, was taken up in glory. The six lines of the hymn fall into three pairs of contrasting verses. The first verse describes how Christ was revealed. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus' appearance in a body is a reference to his birth and incarnation, the eternal son, the architect and judge to the universe, who is without beginning and without end, spoke to the father before he became a man. Kind of combining Hebrews 10 and a psalm, sacrifice and an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. He appeared in a body, saying the early church. This was the initial revelation of Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Colossians 2.9 Paul is speaking of Christ's existence before his incarnation. That existence was spiritual. He was in the form of God. Hebrews speaks of Christ as being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. The Lord Jesus Himself said, God is a spirit, in John chapter 4. Now from this condition as God, not seen with human eyes, Christ came into manifestation, into sight, in the flesh, he became a man and entered into human conditions. And under these human conditions, the attributes of his essential spiritual personality <laughs> was veiled. This is the thought John gives in his gospel. The word was made flesh. He was born flesh and dwelt, or some translations, pitched his tent here among us. Just as, God was, just as God was not visible in the tabernacle in the wilderness, so Jesus Christ was veiled when He tabernacled among us in human flesh. He did not appear to men what He really was. Man did not recognize who He was. 
the one who in the beginning was God, was with God, and who made all things. He became a little helpless baby. He was the image of the invisible God and had all power in heaven and on earth. But down here he took upon himself human flesh. Because he was not recognized by man, he was treated as an imposter, a blasphemer. He was hated, persecuted, and murdered. God manifested in the flesh was poor, was tempted, and tried and actually shed tears. The second half of the line was vindicated by the Spirit refers to the corresponding bookend of his earthly life, his resurrection. Romans 1 verse 4 explains that Christ, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Likewise, Romans chapter 8 speaks of the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So the first two verses sing of the supernatural incarnation and resurrection of Christ was revealed him that revealed him as the Messiah. This is the, the Jesus that the church must... I'm sorry. So the first two verses sing of the supernatural incarnation and resurrection of Christ that revealed him as the Messiah. This is the Jesus that the church must confess. Anything less is blasphemous. The witness of Christ. The second grouping of this hymnal uh, sings of the witnesses of Christ. Was seen by angels which preached among the nations. This grouping contrasts the witnesses, heavenly angels and earthly nations. One is supernatural, the other natural. One is superhuman, the other human. The angels saw everything. Angels foretold the birth of Christ to Mary and then to Joseph. At his birth, the sky was filled with angelic witnesses who sang glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. After Christ's temptation, the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. In Gethsemane, as he sweat, as it were, drops, great drops of blood, the angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Angels witnessed the resurrection and sat at his empty tomb. Angels comforted the disciples as he ascended to heaven. And presently, Jesus is adored in glory by vast angelic hosts who sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And this same Jesus will return his angels with his angels as our king and deliverer. He was indeed seen by angels. They could not get enough of him and they never will. The angels were the least removed from him, and the Gentiles were farthest removed. And he was preached among the nations, and still is. The whole realm of intelligent creation saw him. There was cosmic witnesses to Christ 
on earth and in heaven. The reception of Christ, the third coupling, sings of the reception given to Christ, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Here we see his reception in two separate geographics, earth and heaven. He was believed on in the world. Regarding this, the Apostle John wrote, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And again, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We have believed on him in the world because of this. Paul's triumphant shout is ours. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We read that earlier in 1 Timothy. At the end, his earthly reception was crowned with his heavenly reception and taken up to glory. This, of course, refers to Christ's ascension. If the angels sang in wonder at the birth of Christ when he came down to earth, oh, how they must have sung when he returned to heaven. What a shout must have gone up when the everlasting gates lifted up for the king of glory. They were all there to meet him, the angels who raised their flaming swords at the gates of Eden, the angel of the apocalypse who stood with one foot on the sea and the other on the land, the archangels Michael and Gabriel. And here is the point. The magnificent Christ of his grand confession makes possible the godly conduct that Paul so earnestly desires. We are the church. We are family, God's household. God is our Father, and we are brothers and sisters. We are the church of the living God. He lives in each of us. We together are the pillar and foundation of the truth. And because of this, what we believe and confess about Christ is everything. We confess that He was revealed by His incarnation and resurrection. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit. We confess that He was witnessed by heaven and earth, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations. We confess that He was received in earth and in heaven, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. Because we are the church, and because we confess such a Christ, we can and must conduct ourselves in a way that brings glory to Him. As the Apostle told another church in 1 Corinthians, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
And the church must confess and warn those who are outside of its household that Christ is coming back. Just as the early church held these practices to heart, so must we. Just as the early church thought Christ would return in their lifetime, so must we. We must conduct ourselves here as a family and individually when we leave this place that His bride is worthy of the one who is called faithful and true. Lord, help us. We hear what you had to say through Paul and what Paul wrote to Timothy and the church that he was leading in Ephesus. Lord, how does it resonate with us today? We deal with the same things. False idols, false teachings, our conduct. Lord, we, we desire more of you. Help us to be better examples when we meet and when we leave this place, help us to be worthy of the calling that you have called us to. Simply because you are worthy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.